Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host this week, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for joining me. First, we're happy to be joined by Dr. Athena Trenton, the executive director of NAMI North Texas. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. NAMI provides support, education, and advocacy for individuals and family members impacted by mental health struggles. To learn about their free services in DFW, you can visit NAMINorthTexas.org. Dr. Trenton, how you doing? I'm doing fabulous. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Can I call you Athena? Yes, please do. All right. First of all, for those who don't know, what is NAMI North Texas? So as you mentioned earlier, NAMI North Texas, uh, we are the local um, North Texas affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Our service area is Denton, Collin, Rockwell, and Dallas counties. So there's a NAMI affiliate for almost every county in Texas. Um, NAMI Tarrant County covers the west side of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So no matter where you're at, there's likely a NAMI near you. Can you tell us about the history of NAMI across the country? Sure. Um, So it started, gosh, I believe in 1979 up in Ohio. A couple of mothers were kind of sitting there. Both of their children had mental health issues, and they didn't feel like there was a lot of support around them. It wasn't, you know, at, at that point in time, the stigma was even you know, greater than it is now in relation to talking about it, finding resources, finding the appropriate medical attention, and recognizing it as an actual health issue. So they came up with the idea of developing uh, an organization that helped parents first um, and help family members learn where the resources are, um, learn how to support each other, and then eventually developing peer programs that helped the people who were um, challenged with the mental health issues themselves. And um, that started taking shape and growing um, uh, to, to let you know how quickly that grew across the U.S. and how much of a need there was for a resource like that. Um, our organization, NAMI North Texas, which started as, um, gosh, even before it was NAMI Dallas, it was something else. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, NAMI Dallas, started in 1982, so only three years later, it, it made its way down to Texas. And so, um, and now it's a national organization in all 50 states. And we cover, you know, national, there's three levels of NAMI, to, just to give you an idea of how the structure of the organization works. Mm-hmm. We do have the national level now, so that, um, no matter which NAMI you go to in the United States, let's say you're in Dallas right now, you're one of our community members. We like to call ourselves the NAMI North Texas family because that's how, how the community we, we work on building um, so that we relate to each other just like, you know, a supportive family. Right. Yeah. And um, so no matter where you go, let's say you move from Dallas and you move up to Seattle, Washington, and you're looking for a NAMI there. That NAMI will provide the exact same programming, the base programming, the national, like the support groups, the classes, 
they're all the same, and National makes sure that the fidelity of all of those programs are implemented exactly the same across the board. So no matter where you are in the United States, you get those same core programs. And so NAMI National makes sure that happens. They do the advocating at the federal level for um, mental health-friendly bills in the federal legislature. And then we have the state NAMI programs that support the affiliates, help with resources, and work on advocacy at the state level. And then we have the local affiliates like NAMI North Texas, who we're the people who are right there in person implementing the programs, developing the supportive communities, advocating reducing stigma locally, and generally that central place where people can go to where they don't know where to start when they know there's a mental health issue in the family with themselves. Um, they're afraid to reach out, admit it, and they can just, you know, call us and we'll walk them through the steps on what to do, where to go, who to talk to. And so that's what we do in that respect. And that's um, kind of how the, the whole program structured. And what? I think I like went way off <laughs> no. to another area. And then I was supposed to address your question after that. So did I address the question? You addressed the question. You gave us the background okay. and the history, and that's what we were looking for. We're talking with Dr. Sure. Athena Trenton, the executive director of NAMI North Texas. Can you tell us about your background and how you got involved in NAMI? Sure. Um, it, it's funny. I didn't even know NAMI existed when I applied for the executive director position. I, I found a position opening and said, this is this sounds great. It's perfect. I, I, you know, have evolved into building nonprofits and running smaller mm-hmm. nonprofits. Um, my background, my doctorate is in education, educational leadership and international education. So I started out in academia, working in student affairs, implementing programs for um, underrepresented communities, both international students, and I worked a lot with uh the multicultural offices as well. And then I did some consulting on on intercultural communications and how to work with people with backgrounds that are um, different than your own Mm -hmm. and learning how to work in multicultural environments. And, you know, somehow my career evolved into working in nonprofits. When I moved to Dallas, I couldn't find a job in academia down here, so I started in the nonprofit world, and that led me into NAMI North Texas. And when I started the job, I thought, okay, this is perfect. I, I, I've started my own pro- nonprofit in Michigan and built it on my own and then was COO of another one here in Dallas, and this is my chance to really um, pull all of the experience I have into you know, one organization and um, some uncon- you know, unconventional experience that probably would help us be able to reach out and um, impact a larger population. And little did I know that this job would be such a serendipitous experience for me. I am one of those people who grew up thinking that my thoughts of suicide my depression was all just being a teenager, that it was a normal teenage thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just pushed through it. My parents didn't think that much of it. They thought, hey, it's just, you know, you're a teenager. This happens. This is what it is. Once you get off to college and you grow up, it'll be fine. And you'll mature and things, these types of things won't bother you so much. And I got into college, and everything was great. And then I um, started having some other health issues, which exacerbated the mental health issues. But So then I was able to blame it on the regular health issues. Mm-hmm. And so my entire adult life, I was battling this chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And so I just blamed the mental health issues on that. And to me, mental health issues were a weakness. If you couldn't push through and, you know, strength was overcoming everything, strength was, you know, that whole 
and I want to say it's kind of a farce, the whole American dream thing. Mm-hmm. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, use your resources, and no matter where you come from, you can become anything you want. And that was the attitude I had for myself, not necessarily for everybody. Because working in the multicultural world, I'm very aware mm-hmm. of, you know, the societal influences on socioeconomic status and barriers for underrepresented communities. But for me, myself, even though I came from a Native American background, that didn't apply to me in my head. And so I felt like if I were to admit to myself I had a mental health issue, I was weak. And I'm not weak. I'm strong. So push through, push through, push through. And then um, I lived by myself for a lot of my adult life. So anytime I had to get away from people, anytime I couldn't get out of bed, I could call into work sick and it didn't feel like a mental health problem to me. I just kept blaming it on everything else in the world because I'm not weak. And I got this job at NAMI after I had some of the lowest points in my life. I moved down to Dallas, married my husband and just, ran into a brick wall socially, professionally, emotionally, in every way you could think of, and lost a lot of confidence because I could not find a job in my field. And um, once I got this job with NAMI and I started talking with our board members, uh, our community, and, you know, I want to walk the walk. If I'm going to run this organization, I have to walk the walk. But I didn't think I had personal experience. I just knew I could run a nonprofit organization. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, wow, I can look back on my childhood and see how I made myself sick to my stomach with my anxiety, how the suicidal ideations that I did have were real. They weren't just because I was a teenager. And even now, when I can't get out of bed and I'm you know, I take antidepressants. I've been taking antidepressants for a few years, but I just never made the connection and never admitted to myself that I had a mental health issue. So being part of NAMI North Texas has helped me grow and has helped me become that person who can really dive into this organization and say, I've been there. I know exactly, you know, how to work with this organization, how to grow it, how to develop that community of support that we want that has no judgment, no stigma. And we're all supportive of each other because I know if I had that before, you know, a year and a half ago, there's a lot of struggles that I had in my life. I probably, they probably would not have been as severe as they actually were. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. And I am having the time of my life. I am just excited to work every single day and meet more and more people who are, you know, have the same passions I do about mental health. You know, this is a great story. And what I love about your story, and by the way, congratulations on, you know, the fact that you are the executive director and it's a perfect match and that you are authentic And I bring up the phrase authentic because once upon a time there was also street cred. And the fact that you've lived it means so much to so many people who are being treated or being cared for to know this, not just somebody who who read about it in a book and that you're just not just a doctor who diagnosed it, but you've actually lived some of the same situations that they have. So I give you a lot of credit for your authenticity and the fact that this is a situation that's meant to be for you so far right now. I appreciate that so very much. I, I don't think I would have ever, you know, come to a place where I was comfortable with myself if I didn't find this community. I don't have to be the executive director of it as long as I'm part of it. And you know what? You mentioned earlier about how the once upon a time there was a thought that if you had – uh, depression or mental illness or and, and suffering from any kind of mental pressures that that was a weakness. And in the world of sports and sports talk radio, which is my world, we've been around a lot of some of the greatest athletes, some of the greatest coaches, sports figures, 
who have suffered some forms of depression and they've talked about it. And can you talk about how just the having an idea of a conversation can actually help people feel better? Um, yeah, absolutely. Just the idea of just having that conversation and not holding it inside you know, whether you really be- believe it in yourself, whether you were lo- you are like I was thinking that, well, this is a weakness, I have to get past this. The first thing to do is mental health is part of your overall health. Yes. Um, it doesn't matter what belief system you come from, but I'm just going to use my American Indian belief system um, as an example. We, we live by a philosophy that is circular. We call it the medicine wheel divided into four equal parts. Those four equal parts represent a lot of different things, but it basically says each thing that it represents creates that full circle. So one piece of it is your health, your mental health, your spiritual, physical, and social health. And so you must have, you know, they must all be in balance for you to be one with yourself, one with your creator, one with whatever you believe the universe brings you. And so one thing that we hope for with the advocacy that we do and all that is to make sure people understand that mental health is part of your overall health. That's the first thing in initiating that conversation is recognizing mm-hmm. that it's part of your health. Mm-hmm. Just like you treat, you know, let's say pick any chronic illness. It's common for us to pick diabetes because they're very, very similar in relation to how they're treated. You're usually treated for the rest of your life. If you don't take your medicine, you get very, very sick. And so you have medicine that you take regular. It's the same thing. So if you can help look at it as a medical condition, mental health, when something's not right in your brain, it's a chemical imbalance. So there is a physical portion to it. Or it could be hormonal. There's a lot of different um, potential causes for it. And I'm not a clinician or a medical doctor, so that's as far as I can go with that. But So the first thing I would say is to have that conversation, recognize you're talking about a medical condition. So it's not weakness. Can you also strength. talk about, yet yeah, you talk about the strength, but you're also mm-hmm. talking about how it is part of your overall health. Exercise sure. improves a lot of people's physical health. Can exercise improve their mental health? Oh, absolutely. You can read article upon article um, that exercise, especially aerobic exercise, increases your endorphins. And the endorphins ah. are kind of you. That the happy place of your brain, yes. so to speak. And the more active you are, the the more you release those endorphins, the more you do things that make you happy. So, you know, exercise is good in all aspects. Um, but just trying not to be isolated is really, really important. And that's what, you know, the current situation with the pandemic and everything else going on, so many people are isolated right now. There's a lot of people that are going out, going for walks, starting to run, doing things because they have the time to exercise. But there's other people who are just getting, either they're scared to go outside or they're stuck in their houses and they're not really that physical of people. And that isolation could actually make things worse. So exercising is a great way to get yourself out of that shell and to increase those endorphins. We're talking with Dr. Athena Trenton, the executive director of NAMI North Texas. And you mentioned the pandemic. Let's get into the pandemic and how it affects us mentally. Now we've been told to isolate, but self-isolation, which you've talked about can also affect us mentally in these different ways. You just said, can you express the difference between dealing with mental illness in the pandemic and on a regular basis when people are more social? So when people are more social, we have more motivation to get up and out, to get out of our bed. When people are really depressed, and it's not just depression, what I want to make sure is what we know, we know what mental health is. Mental health is a full spectrum of things from, you know, 
some people think it's only when somebody's schizophrenic and running around thinking that um, somebody, you know, imaginary people are after them. Well, that does happen. There are people who hear voices. There are people who hear voices that tell them to do things, sometimes good things, sometimes um, harmful things. But that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, depression, anxiety, and, you know, sometimes it's just situational. You're going through a grieving process. You're um, going through a really stressful time and trying to write your dissertation. I can tell you I've been through that. <laughs> there are days <laughs> you're just, you do not want to get up. And there's, you know, so you could have a situational issue. So there's that whole spectrum and everything in between. So before the pandemic, that spectrum existed. And, you know, one in five people, um, it's estimated that one in five people are affected by some type of mental illness. So um, whether it's, you know, diagnosed, treated, whatever, um, there's other statistics on whether or not people are treated, and there's a whole bunch of stats that I could go into, but based on your question, you know, to answer that, pre-pandemic, you have that spectrum, one in five people are affected, but there's things, you know, but all of the resources that were available before, you know, are, you, know, you could get up, you could get out, you could go have dinner with a friend and get your mind off whatever's causing your anxiety. You could go have dinner with your family. And so you didn't have that isolation. Isolation is one of the worst things that you can do for yourself if you suffer from anywhere in that spectrum. Mm-hmm. in relation to mental health. You know, so, um, Dr. Dr. Trenton, one of the yeah. things I, I mm-hmm. read about, and it has been wonderful for my household, not that we have any kind of uh, depression or stress in our household, but I understand when the pandemic first started, there was a lot of households that had stress involved because people were working at home or they couldn't get out like you were saying. And I read an article about pets. If people had pets, the pets actually help people who are depressed and maybe in the pandemic. Have you found anything about that? That's actually been, I've seen more articles about that right now. Gosh, I think I saw one just recently about how, I don't remember the statistics, but the adoptions Mm -hmm. have been up. I don't remember what the statistic was, at least doubled during the pandemic because, especially people living alone, you need somebody there with you. Right. That isolation can actually provoke mental health issues. And um, during the pandemic, we're seeing a very big increase in people who never had issues before having issues now. Just take it as Prescott and Mm -hmm. other famous people now coming out and speaking up about, yeah, being isolated like that, really, you know, I'm the anxiety about, you know, can I play football and still be healthy and safe? Am I going to ruin my career if I agree to play football? Mm-hmm. Should I take this year off? Am I going to ruin my career taking this year off? Mm-hmm. And then you're sitting home alone or like you were talking about the NBA players, they're playing in a bubble and right. they their families and it's just all of that together and just, can trigger practically anyone. I would be very surprised if someone hasn't experienced a certain amount of situational depression and anxiety, if not more. Have you um, seen a rise? Yes. Have you have you also seen a rise in celebrities? You mentioned Dak Prescott, and we were talking earlier about some of the NBA players in the in the bubble over the summertime being isolated away from their family and friends. Even though they had everything you could ask for, they still were. Uh, dealing with some forms of depression. Can you talk about maybe over the last few years, different mm-hmm. celebrities talking about their own uh, battles with depression? Have you seen a rise in that? And is it helpful as far as everyday people understanding that they're not alone? I, I think that is extremely helpful. Um, celebrities have a very large platform. And, you know, depending on how they want to use it, it could be extremely helpful in helping us understand that that conversation about mental health should be just as common 
as that conversation about diabetes. And the more people that can speak up and talk about it, the more it becomes normalized, the more it becomes accepted as a true medical condition. And the stigma can go away. And there's stigma in all different manners. Um, There's stigma professionally. Um, You talk about first responders. Mm -hmm. You know, you work with a partner. We've got a police officer on our board, and he's the mental health liaison for his department. And he and I talk all the time about the stigma among first responders and what do we do to get them help because they witness trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma and are expected to just swallow it and go back to work. And if they admit that they have, that is bothering them and their mental health is affected, how are they supposed to be able to go out and take care of their partners while they're out on a, a dangerous call? How are they supposed to take care of our community? How are they supposed to, you know, have that resiliency? But they're human. You know, there's stigma in different communities, faith-based communities. um, You know, they'll say pray it away. Some, not all. Mm -hmm. Um, There's definitely different cultural. There's certain, you know, communities where the culture is, no, that doesn't happen in our community. And... You know, you go, you know, take care of yourself and, you know, mental health, mental illness is not an illness. There's something wrong with you. So that stigma is all over the place. So if we can see all different sorts of people who have platforms, Mm -hmm. you know, people from different professions, people from different cultural backgrounds, different faith-based, religious, belief system backgrounds to help alleviate the stigma and develop those conversations, I think um, it will help just the average everyday person say, you know what, if um, Lady Gaga can say that in public on camera, I can talk to my mom about it. I think that's excellent. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you mentioned the platforms and there are so many people who get their information on social media of all ages, but I've, I want to, focus right now on Generation Z. Those are the teenagers. Because you brought this up earlier, that when you were a teenager, you were thinking that, okay, I'm I'm feeling bad about some things mentally, and your parents are like, oh, you get over it, you're just a teenager. I've noticed that in some of the articles I've read and some of the kids that I've talked to, that because they have access to so much information, some of them are suffering from depression because of information overload. Can you talk about some examples of Generation Z kids that might be battling some mental illness? Um, Yeah, actually, the first thing to recognize is that, like, um, I'm not sure how old you are, but I can tell you that, you know, I was, you know, in grade school, middle school, high school, you know, before there was social media. Same here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you can relate then. Yes. Um, And... So when I got bullied, I got home, the bullying was over. So I had my family and I had my support group and I had the friends that I wanted to be around around me. In Gen Z, everything's about social media. Everything's about trying to put your your best person out there. But the bullying doesn't stop now. The, you know, reputations can get completely ruined so easy. So the anxiety of, oh my gosh, this person is saying this about me. Right. Or they, yeah, all of that stuff. So there's so much more pressure on kids in middle school and high school right now because your image is your face. Well, they don't use Facebook, right? Now, Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and and TikTok, all that. Um, So that, your image is what's on there. Yep. It's not just what's on the playground or what's in study hall or, you know, you as class president. And so <laughs> I would say there are a lot more pressures on kids right now. To And there's, I wouldn't be surprised if you looked at, I haven't looked at longitudinal statistics. I just know current statistics, but there is a hot, a, a very high um, rate of undiagnosed and unaddressed mental health issues. 
And one of our programs, which is called Ending the Silence, we go into uh, middle schools and high schools, and we talk to the students. We also have a parent version and a staff version about it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to talk about it, and this is how you talk about it. And then letting them know what the signs and symptoms are so they can either recognize it in themselves or express concern to their friends or about their friends to a teacher or a parent and letting them know it's okay because you care. And if we can get, you know, get them to talk about it that early in life as they grow up and become adults, it's going to be a normal conversation for them, which means the next generation is a normal conversation. It just becomes more and more normalized through that. And the other great thing that comes out of the, the early intervention piece is that most people, the signs of a mental illness are not recognized until people get to be about college age. Mm -hmm. And whether you're in college or not, um, but most people talk about kids in college who that's where the symptoms show up to a point where they can't function anymore and something extreme happens and they have to quit college or quit the job or quit the technical school they're in or whichever route they choose after high school. And if we can catch them in middle school or high school, when the symptoms are not that severe, we can get them help earlier and we can prevent those things from happening. And it's the, the younger we can recognize the symptoms and get them help. Um, I think we can eventually reduce the numbers um, and the statistics of um, 20-somethings and even adults with mental health conditions that are not controlled. Dr. Trenton, well. this has been an outstanding conversation. Before we let you get out of here, are there any major events or programs you'd like to share about NAMI North Texas? Um, I'd like to mention, one, we we are doing everything virtually, probably at least until next fall. I think that's the case with most people. Um, I'd like to mention, if you are a someone challenged with a mental health condition, or a family member. We have virtual support groups right now, family support groups on Tuesday evenings, uh, peer support groups on Thursday evenings. Just check out our website. We have classes for families um, and for peers, and those are starting up within the next couple weeks. They last eight weeks, once a week. Um, but our big event, our big community event, which, again, is going to be virtual this year, but we, had, we were, had huge success last year, is our NAMI Walk. That's our big fundraiser for the year. But this is it, really what it's about is bringing the community together and helping, you know, create that bond, that no-stigma, non-judgmental community, and help raise awareness about mental health, as well as raise funds for our organization so we can continue to provide all of our um, our services for free. We charge nothing for anything that we do. And so that is going to be on May 22nd. And people can sign up already to start their teams, start fundraising. Um, everything is ready to go right now. So you can go to our website, naminorthtexas.org, sign up for support groups, classes, as well as start um, pulling your teams together and register for our walk. Dr. Athena Trenton, the executive director of NAMI North Texas. Again, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Oh, we appreciate you too. You have been um, amazing supporters of our organization and of the mental health community. We really appreciate um, the help that you give us as well. And now let's talk about another amazing charity in the Dallas area. Habitat for Humanity. David J. Crawford serves as their CEO and joins us to give us some more information on Habitat for Humanity, where their goal is to create a world where everyone has a decent place to live. Hey, David, begin by introducing yourself to everybody and your role with Habitat and your background and sure. how you got involved with them. Sure. Um, well, uh, hi, Chris. It's great to talk to you today. Um, you I came too. to Habitat about three years ago. I have been in the um, for-profit world. I ran three companies, one in Memphis, one in Florida, and one here. Um, but while I, while I was in Memphis, um, I was actually on the board of directors with uh, Memphis Affiliate for Habitat. And okay. then in Florida, I was a uh, home sponsor there with the company I ran. And so when I came to Dallas, the company we 
that I was leading, we sold it. And um, it appeared that Dallas Habitat had a need for a new CEO. And so through a course of connections, as, as the world is, uh, I was able to, to meet with the board and uh, found a great fit. So that was about three years ago. Um, so a little profit world and um, taking those skills and applying it to the nonprofit world. See, you mentioned Memphis, and I can't let you go any further because I went to high school in Memphis. And, of course, Texas is all about barbecue, and Memphis is all about barbecue. And it is a Sunday morning, and people sometimes <laughs> got their brisket going right now. So I have to, I have to ask you the big question, Texas brisket or Memphis ribs? Which one do you prefer? Yes. <laughs> Good answer. Yes. That's just about my oh. answer, too. I'm a big brisket fan, and I'm a big barbecue fan. Ah, I need to fire yes. up, fire up my green egg, and get that going. Now that you talk about that, very Thanks good. Thanks for reminding me, Chris. Oh yeah, most definitely. It's never too late. And by the way, I like the dry and I like the wet ribs. I like them both. All right, we're talking with the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, uh, David Crawford, and and David, um, can you talk about the work that Habitat's doing and some of the programs going on around Dallas Fort Worth? Oh, this is only a half an hour show, isn't it? Uh, I'll have to abbreviate. You know, Habitat's got so much. It's, a, it's um, really a, somewhat of a complicated organization uh, mm-hmm. in many, many respects. Um, we were founded as an affiliate here in 1986. Uh, we've built or rehabbed about just shy of 2,000 homes here in, here in Dallas. Um, and on, and, on average, we have about 100 to 110,000 volunteer hours a year by um, 75 to 100 core volunteers and then sponsors and donors that have continued to support us um, through, through, throughout these last 35-plus years. Um, a couple of things I thought you might enjoy, Chris. Um, Dallas Habitat has invested, uh, and our sponsors have invested just shy of $200 million in 25 Dallas communities. Or wow. Yeah, and, and just in those you know, roughly um, – 2,000 homes. And our homeowners pay on average about two and a half to $3 million a year in property taxes. Um, so, you know, it's not a handout that we have for the Habitat families. Um, we, we like to say it's not a handout, it's a hand up. We like to um, uh, have our families um, participate in the build process. Uh, they go through a lot of financial education, and I'll talk about in a little bit, um, to get them ready to, to be homeowners. And then, uh, um, let them become tax-paying um, contributors of, the, of, of Dallas County. You know, you mentioned rehabilitating some homes. Uh, I think it was the summer of 2019. I was able to help with the Dallas Mavericks rehabilitate a couple of homes over in West Dallas. Can you mm-hmm. talk about how you guys like to go into these neighborhoods and basically fix up a lot of the homes that only need a little love? Uh, we call that a brush with kindness. And uh, you're right, Chris. We probably met on that job site because I was there yeah. with you that day. Oh, yeah. It was it was um, a nice day. It got kind of hot later on, but it was a nice morning. <laughs> what we like to do is as we go into a community to begin the construction process of new homes, uh, we also like to canvas the, the community and the surrounding property and look for homes that might be in um, need of some, as you say, a little extra love, maybe a new roof, some ramps, fencing, um, cleanup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as we build new homes, we like to lift up the rest of the neighborhood as, as best that we can. Um, so that's the part of the program that you were a part of last year, Chris, uh, with the Mavericks. Mm-hmm. And we, we, as we get ready to enter a new community, uh, we kick off. We usually lead, uh, lead that construction process with uh, a brush with kindness. Now, I used to live in Kessler Park, and so I found out years ago there's a little store, a Habitat for Humanity store, right over there off of Hampton, and I would go in there like I was in Home Depot and find all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Could you talk about the stores or in particular that store and, and how you guys came around with that thing and how it's been able to serve a lot of people? Because it's got all kinds of great stuff. We do. Um, it's it's part um uh, home uh, repair mm-hmm. store, part uh, thrift store. We actually have four stores in, in Dallas County. 
Wow. Uh, and those stores, every, every dollar that we generate uh, that, uh, in terms of making um, profit is then reinvested back into the core mission of Dallas Habitat. So as a perspective, we'll make uh, roughly a million dollars in our four stores this year. That's enough to build 10 extra houses for us, for families, uh, over the course of the next year or so. So it, it plays a vital part in our mission and also uh, a vital part in supporting the community. Our pricing is exceptional for home goods, um, be it um, uh, lightly uh, used, uh, donated, and we also purchase a lot of, of uh uh, home maintenance uh, material like cabinetry, uh, carpet, uh, tile, uh, et cetera. So lots of things that you can do. We're actually getting 10 loads of, of uh, mulch and soil this weekend, um, getting ready for uh, gardening season. So be sure to stop uh, next week. Oh, you know I will. In fact, like I said, it's it's almost like a big secret. It's like this place has everything. It's like going to Lowe's or going to Home Depot, but they also have like furniture and stuff in there. And it's it's also at a reasonable price. And it's always for a great cause. We're talking with David Crawford, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, and you guys also do a lot to combat pro- poverty. Can you talk about some of the groups you might partner with and some of the things you do in that area? Well, it's. Um Poverty, our real focus is on providing for affordable housing here in Dallas County. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, there's, a, there's a gap of anywhere between twenty to 30,000 um, quantities of homes that, that uh, are, are not available to people that can actually afford them um, in, in the affordable housing um, um, realm uh, mm-hmm. for, for, for us. And um, it's, it's a big number when you think about all those families that deserve housing that for one reason or another, we can't make it available to them as a, as a city, as a county, and as nonprofits. So we're working hard to make that possible. A couple of things that we do that help our families. Um, certainly, the, the starting point is through uh, financial literacy and education. Um, obviously, if you have poor credit, you need to improve some of your habits. So we, we put credit counseling um, services in place for families that want to um, move through the home buying process, whether they buy a Habitat home or not, mm-hmm. if it's just a way to improve their skills. And we work with them on savings, debt counseling, uh, and, and so forth. And we have, at any given time, about 165, 185 families that are going through counseling at any given time. Um, we just had uh, a dedication of four houses this past weekend, and we had about 10 families uh, the, uh, uh, the month before that were able to buy another home that weren't Habitat homes. So that's a part of our mission as well, is getting people qualified to buy a home. Um, and so when you buy a Habitat home, one of the programs that we have, in addition to the um, counseling services or the financial services, is we, we provide 0% interest rate. Um, that's one of the things that we do in conjunction with our sponsors. And obviously that makes uh, housing a bit more affordable. Um, when you think about a, three, uh, a 30-year mortgage at 0%, while mm-hmm. interest rates are very low today at 3 3.5%, 0% is a lot, uh, a lot better than that. That's absolutely um, amazing. So that, yeah. You know, we wouldn't be able to do that with the, without the, the you know the, the generous sponsors and donors that we have in the in the in the community. But they, through their through their generous funding, that allows us to buy down the interest rates to get our families in and and keep their keep those homes affordable for them. Okay, so you're talking about the different families and, and allowing them the opportunity to own a home. You you mentioned yes. uh, getting their credit scores together because a lot of people don't understand the credit score process or how to be in position to get a mortgage. And, and so your, your, your facilities or your knowledge is available on what locations, where can people find out how to get a hold of you guys to help them move into some of these homes? And like you said, learn what it takes to, to get a mortgage. Well, it's very easy. Um, go to uh, www.dallashabitat.org and that's a starting place. We have qualification uh, under our homeowner tab um, on our, on our website. Um, that allows uh, a family, uh, an individual, to look and see the, what the process is and uh, begin the counseling process. Some people, that process may be six months. 
some that may be two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're if they're committed to go through the process, we're committed to to helping them uh, uh, reach their reach their objective. There are so many families that wish they could own a home. There's a lot of people who live in apartments. There are a lot of people who are new to the area. Uh, can you give me some more criteria of the quote unquote typical families that you work with? Well, the, uh, the majority of our families um, are actually um, single um, minority women with two to three children mm-hmm. um, that we've supported um, throughout our um, 35 years. Um, what we have found um, for, for these uh, individuals is um, through the course of, of their time in, in home, we've been able to see that uh, the homeownership has been able to uh, increase their, their, uh, their wealth generation for families. Get this, uh, Chris. Just last year, we had 37 families pay off their mortgage, Wow, which is great. And for those 37 homes, they built up equity in their home of $5.9 million. So they, so they were basically came, they came to Habitat a number of years ago mm-hmm. with not a lot, maybe poor credit. They came with a job, uh, a steady, steady income mm-hmm. that we were able to then help transpose that, um, that job into home ownership. And now, a number of years later, they've been able to build generational wealth. Uh, that's that is so important about home ownership. Uh, as and as as a part of home ownership, we see that um, children of homeowners do much better in school and about 116 percent more likely to graduate college by living in a home. Um, we found that um, uh, home ownership improves the health outcome of children, um, dramatically reducing their risks for disease and illness. You can't find too many issues with owning a home. And so that's um, what, what we try to do here in, in, in Dallas. Now, you mentioned owning the homes and, and, and the kids doing better in school. Um, can you talk about how it's kind of tougher with a gig economy for people to qualify? Or has it been a different struggle or how you've been able to, you know, navigate your way to help people through a gig economy? Well, I have to say, so we had 41 homes that we've closed in the last 12 months uh, that have been Habitat homes, not Mm -hmm. homeowners that have gone through our financial counseling and bought outside of Habitat. Uh, But of those 41, we actually had 42 families go through the – more that have gone through the process, but only one that lost their job due to COVID. Can you believe that? Wow. yeah, so this we day, wow, during a pandemic. Working, working with our families. Um, so while, while the economy has been tough on many, many people, um, we, were, we were fortunate in our families um, be the, 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 right, the right job, the right time, the right place for them, um, that they were able to continue through the process for us this last, this last year. Um, now, you know, the economy, um, we keep seeing it um, – you know, kind of vacillate mm-hmm. a few months up, a few months down, and we expect that to continue on for a while. But the need for affordable housing has not changed. And if you have stable employment, bad credit, we can help improve that. No savings, we can help you improve that. Um, we're, we try to target a family that would be in the 30 to 60% average median income in Dallas County. Mm-hmm. So let me give you a perspective. That would be for a, a, a single person, uh, uh, their, their income would be in the mid-30s. Um, someone with a family of four or five, that would be an income of just shy of $50,000. So mm-hmm. you kind of, that, that's our target audience of who are Habitat buyers. Basically, if you can, if you are, uh, if you are the kind of person that can actually uh, be involved with the stimulus check, you're probably a, a candidate to be involved with Habitat for Humanity. If you'd like to own a home, can you talk? Just go to our website, Dallas uh, Habitat dot org, and, and begin the process. Can you talk about? I bring up the stimulus check. Can you talk about how you guys have had to pivot or do business differently uh, during the pandemic in the last calendar year or so? Uh, we've been fortunate, uh, I have to say. Um, Good. So last March, March 22nd, when um, Commissioner Jenkins kind of um, uh, asked, asked us to all step back in Dallas County, mm-hmm. um, our leadership team, we've been pla- planning in the eventuality of, of this happening. 
Uh, we closed our four restores. Uh, we sent our uh, employees home. Uh, we actually put a furlough in place for our the, for about sixty percent of our employees and took pay cuts for the balance of our employees. Wow. Uh, we were able to take advantage of the um, government stimulus of the uh, PPP program, uh, payroll protection plan, and within about forty five days, we unfurlowed all of our employees. We reinstated all of the pay cuts for all of our employees. Nice. We restated, we, we reopened our jobs because we kept three things in mind. We wanted to have a safe environment for our employees and for our customers at our restores and on our job sites. We wanted to preserve jobs and we wanted to um, continue to press forward on our mission. So those were our three objectives. And I think we did really well on the first two uh, safety and jobs. And then with respect to our mission, uh, with the help of our sponsors and donors, we did not stop on any homes while we pulled back on the quantity of volunteers that were actually on the job site. Normally we would have 25 volunteers mm -hmm. on the job site. We utilized essential workers, which were subcontractors during this, during the period of, um, uh, basically May 1st through midsummer. And then we were able to bring back in limited fashion uh, some volunteers. We brought back about 10 volunteers to the job site beginning in the midsummer. So we didn't miss a date on any of the homes. We felt responsibility to our families, to our sponsors. Um, as, as the saying goes around Habitat, uh, we didn't press pause. We pressed play and fast forward. We weren't going to slow down our mission at all. That is absolutely amazing and fantastic. So let's say someone wanted to volunteer. Like I said, I had a chance to volunteer with the Dallas Mavericks over a year ago. It was a very, very rewarding and fun experience. Can you talk about how someone could volunteer and what a typical day would be if you wanted to rehabilitate a home, for example? Sure. Well, there's many ways in which you can volunteer. Mm -hmm. There is the job site, um, which is what most people think about for Dallas or for Habitat for Humanity. Um, helping families, you're on the job site, you're um, swinging a hammer, pounding nails, um, cutting two by fours and, and assembling the frame of the home. That's what most people think about. And those um, exist today. Um, though they are somewhat limited in terms of the quantity because we're still paying close attention to safety on the job site. So we're still only having about 10 um, volunteers. Uh, we also have um, the four restores, as, as you and I talked earlier, Chris, mm -hmm. um, that need lots of, of volunteers to help us assemble furniture, to move furniture, um, to pick up furniture. So there's lots of things um, we can do there. We do neighborhood pickups. Uh, or cleanups. Uh, we had a had one two weeks ago uh, in, I believe it was Joppy, uh, with the Dallas Police Department that we worked in tandem uh, with, mm -hmm. with uh, the Dallas PD. Um, so there's lots of different ways. Most, um, if anyone is interested, once again, best place to go is to um, Dallas Habitat, our website, to get started. And someone from our volunteer services team could get, a, get in touch with you on some of the things that you may be so inclined to do. Uh, our brush with kindness that you and I talked about uh, a bit earlier, Chris, you know, mm -hmm. we have um, those events scheduled um, not until uh, probably next fall, but there'll be painting events and neighborhood cleanups as we target our fall construction site. So you mentioned that, are there any uh, things that you've had to change and make them a Zoom event? Because a lot of people have discovered <laughs> a lot of the meetings that they normally do in person are now on Zoom, or a lot of the functions they wanted to have are now, you know, teleconference or on Zoom. Uh, I am so proud of the Habitat team. Um, the, the infamous pivot, right? We, yeah. Um, they, pivot, they pivoted. We have, and I talked a little bit about uh, the educational classes that we've had. Um, we delivered about a thousand classes or uh, man hours or person hours uh, pre-COVID. Um, but by implementing all of our classwork, which was face-to-face -face and classroom style into Zoom oriented, we've been able to educate and work with um, over 6,500, uh, definitely over 6,000 hours of training in the last 12 months. Um, we, nice. have, we have really demonstrated 
how to um, keep our mission moving forward by working with families on, on Zoom or other, other kinds of medium um, to be able to advance our mission. So as I mentioned earlier, we, we kept um, pressing play and moving forward. Education was one of those uh, bright spots for us uh, specifically. You said a little earlier that you had a lot of cooperation with a lot of your partners and financial sponsors. Can you name some of those people and some of those individuals or some of those groups that have been able to be very supportive for Habitat for Humanity? Because I think it's awesome what you represent, and I'm sure they're proud of their association with you. Well, we have a number of sponsors um, throughout Dallas County, Pioneer Natural Resources, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Highland Park, um, United Methodist Church, they've built over 115 homes with us. Wow. How about that? That's yeah, amazing. Over, over our time. Uh, Pioneer Natural Resources has built uh, 41 with us. Richardson Area Interfaith, uh, it's a, a consortium of 10 um, faith-based organizations in Richardson. Um, they've, they've built in excess of 40 homes with us as well. Uh, plus, there are many... Um, individual or family-based sponsors or uh, that, have, and that contribute through uh, North Texas Giving, through our Women's Build. That's another area that uh, is a fundraiser that we have going on right now focused on uh, 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 construction and uh, a woman who will, who will um, be a homeowner for us. And we've rallied women throughout Dallas County to help us um, build a home, raise money for the home to support our family, as well as provide uh, for ABWK and communities, as well as uh, advancing education for uh, for women um, uh, who who need need some help. You know, so for, it's so perfect you bring that up because this is International Women's Month. So congratulations on all that you've been doing and continue to do on on for the women out there. Thank you, and we're going to move right into. International Homeownership Month uh, before too long in June. That is outstanding. That is outstanding. Again, Habitat for Humanity getting things done. Can you talk a little bit about how you select the neighborhoods that you either build the homes or you refurbish or, you know, repair some of these homes? How does how do you say, ah, this is a good area or does someone reach out to you? How do you how do you pick out the different parts of town that you work in? Well, uh, one of the uh, most challenging elements of our job at Habitat is to find affordable land to be able to construct affordable housing. And we have a great partnership with the city of Dallas, and they have um, land that they have acquired throughout time. Uh, and they, in, uh, through, a, through, a, through a bidding process, uh, we were able to acquire um, land throughout, throughout the community. Um, so as we are able to acquire land from the city of Dallas, that allows us to plot where we're going to construct. In the last um, two years, we focused on three areas, uh, West Dallas, Joppy, and Bonton. Mm-hmm. And this year, we're adding Ideal into the, into the mix, where we'll be building uh, 13 homes this spring and 17 homes there this next fall. Um, but all of those have come um, through our partnership with the city of Dallas. Can you talk about some of the reactions of some of the neighbors who see these homes going up or see these homes being remodeled? Because I know I personally saw looks and smiles of like, wow, you're fixing up that house. Well, it, we obviously think it's, it's, it's great for the neighborhood. It helps pre- preserve value. Um, what we find is um, someone may not be interested in maybe revitalizing their home, but once they see their neighbor get a new uh, paint job or mm-hmm. uh, you know new new ramp or some or a new fence or something on their home, they uh, think, well, maybe we would like to have something like that in our neighborhood as well. But the other part is when construction goes on into the neighborhood, that gives um, I think it gives the neighborhood. Uh, a lot of encouragement about development in the neighborhood, bringing new neighbors in, um, bringing new tax base into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So there, as, I, as we, we talked about a little bit earlier, there's, there's not too many um, down, there's not too many downsides to having new homes into a community with new neighbors. It is so outstanding. And again, Habitat for Humanity doing so many great things in the Dallas area. David, again, can you give the information on how people can reach you and how they can be a part of, of a great organization like Habitat for Humanity? Sure, Chris. It's uh, www.dallashabitat.org, O-R-G, not com. So it's a nonprofit, so it's .org. A lot of people get that mixed up. 
Right. And, and another thing real quick, because this is just a, a, such an outstanding organization. I just think that so many people who listen, you know, they, they wow, I, I feel like I want to be a part of it. And maybe our organization needs to be a part of it. All that stuff is listed on the website where they can, like, go to see who's involved, how they could be involved. And also, if they would try to, uh, like, their credit score increase so that they might be able to own a home. Well, there's another simple way for communication that I'll give out to Chris, and sure. that is if you can't get to Dallas Habitat, just email me, and I'll make sure you get to the right party. And I'm at D Crawford at Dallas-Habitat.org. And I'll make sure if you want to volunteer to get you to our volunteer um, team. If you want to donate, I'll get you to our, our development team. If you want to help sponsor, whatever you want to do, we'll make sure that you find the right landing spot and find the person who can help you. David, we cannot thank you enough. We must have you on again real soon. Maybe we'll have a barbecue sandwich while we're at it, all right? (laughs) Thanks thanks for your time. Appreciate it very much. And thank you, too. That's David Crawford, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity. I'm Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for joining me. Tune in next week as we focus on other organizations doing great things in our community right here on Better Living. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.